Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. Well, on today's episode, I have one of my good friends on here, Sierra. She's going to help me out with a subject that I fumble my language through, I fumble my ideas through, and I think she's going to be very helpful in this discussion. The main idea is just this idea of monogamy versus polygamy, which obviously the basic premise of that is just monogamy is the practice or state of being uh, married to one person at a time and polygamy uh, being the practice or custom of having more than one spouse at a time. So Sierra, thank you for coming on. Um, these basic definitions are probably really obvious, but should we have more language around this than just these two terms? Yeah, I mean, I think that polygamy comes up a lot when you talk about religion. Um, you know, people might often think about Mormonism or um, some mention of it maybe in the Old Testament. Um, but today it looks a lot more often like polyamory, which is being in multiple loving relationships, and they're not necessarily sexual. Um, there's some other more like niche terms like um, polygynous, which is when one man specifically marries multiple women or polyandry when one woman marries multiple men. But for this conversation, I think we'll mostly just talk about um, monogamy, polygamy, and polyamory. Awesome. And those two terms are, like you said, very tied to like um, marriage, which definitely has a lot of roots in certain religious traditions and such. Um, just for you personally, what was your perception of marriage as like a young child? <laughs> um, you know, it was really messed up in my family. Um, I just real quick about me, like, so I'm adopted. I was born out of wedlock and then adopted by my parents, but they had already divorced two times before, like from each other when they adopted me and then my sister and when I was seven, they divorced for the third and final time. Um, and they both went on to remarry other people. And at the same time as this, my family was also religious. We went to church every weekend. Um, and there's lots of talk about hell and sin. The The theology, though, wasn't there. Um, it was more, you know, just your standard, like we go to church on Sunday kind of ordeal. So I all I knew is that I didn't want what they had. Um, and I ended up thinking that I could find what I wanted through the church, that going deeper into religion would give me the marriage that I wanted. Um, and then also, who can't say that when you're a kid, you're like influenced by Disney? <laughs> I am, you know, watching all those movies of. Um, girls being rescued by guys and, and being saved. I mean, I really resonated with that and that I, I really wanted to be saved from the, the trauma that was happening in my family. 
And I always kind of thought, you know, one day I'm going to find my Prince Charming and I'm going to start my own family and we're going to love the Lord and it's going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be perfect. Yeah, that's almost like the perfect storm. I can certainly relate to that in like, what I mean by that is like you have going to church, which tells you marriage is part of God's uh, structure of life. And then you have the Disney movies. And of course, on my end, it was I want to save somebody. So like it wasn't so much about I want a companion even. It was more I was combining the ideas of uh, you should be married because God wants you to be married. Also, uh, here's all the the way to get a wife is to save them from something, which definitely ties into some cultural stuff that happens outside of church. But it's certainly, I think, worse when you combine it with like church culture. Yeah, well, you're going to be Jesus and I'm going to be the church. So I need rescuing and you need to be saving. Yeah, I mean, let's be real. I am kind of like Jesus, but no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's totally that's totally a valid point that I think is accurate. And, you know, the way maybe a church would try to flip that is say, yeah, but like, that's the harder job to be Jesus. You get to be this messy thing as a church. The guys have all this responsibility to be perfect. And then, <laughs> and then it's like, but we're not going to enforce any consequences when they do anything wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah, so your your personal perception of marriage is like kind of I want to do better than what I've seen in my early life. Is that a fair summation? Mhm. Yeah, up until, you know, then when I got into youth group, I feel like it's when I started being able to actually have ideas and thoughts about marriage, you know, cuz it was so it was so crazy when I was little. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, that's also around the time of puberty. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense that once you start kind of shifting into preteen, teen years, you start actually thinking about um, the people around you, you know, and who you're attracted to around you and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And in the church, I know that like many evangelical teens and young adults kind of like shoehorn their relationships in this like intense and uh, dramatic fashion, partially because they're so sexually repressed and horny. And partially because they, like, honestly want to harmonize, like, their desire for partnerships with their desire to obey the religion. Um, I don't know. Did did you feel similar kinds of pressure when you were a teenager in youth group? Um, did you feel like you could kind of just date? or did and, and how did that tie to how you viewed marriage as, like, a young adult? It's kind of both, like, no and yes, which I bet is really relatable for people who are in youth group um as a teenager um you know i dating around if i said i was dating around that would be so shameful also like guys didn't want to date me i had one boyfriend um i have i had one boyfriend besides the guy that i married and the guy that i, I dated in high school my freshman year was like for 2 months um, no one else wanted to label it as anything. Um, but at the same time, I definitely made out with more guys than I could like honestly count or name <laughs> when I was in high school. You um, go, girl. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I kept it. I kept it on wraps. But you know, I think it's really yeah. interesting that in in youth group, contrary to you know, I'm sure we'll talk about college here soon. But um, in high school, really. No one really said anything to me about it. 
Um, the only time I had something really said to me was um, with that guy I ended up dating for two months. Um, before we were dating, we were at some event and we held hands under a table and my youth pastor like publicly shamed us kind of. He saw it and then was like, are you guys dating? Are you like boyfriend, girlfriend? And I said, no. And he was like, well, you should reserve handholding for for when you're dating. And I think that was probably the first time that it was really like put on me that I had to have some kind of label for a relationship before I could do anything romantic at all. Um, and, and that makes it really, really stressful. And I think that's probably also another reason why, you know, once I did with all these other guys, a lot of them being in youth group, like did do romantic stuff when we weren't labeling it, they were extra afraid to label it as well. Like it was like, well, we already, we did this. And I guess all we're doing is just the physical and we're not even gonna get into trying to figure it out, you know? Yeah. It's kind of odd. I guess it's not odd, but like one of the things I reflect on is how like the only sex ed in church culture is don't do it. Um, and then <laughs> that combined with like, there's vague talks of like, you know, yeah, say you shouldn't hand hold like a youth pastor might say, don't hold hands with someone you're not dating or might say like, wouldn't it be great if your first kiss was on your wedding day? They might say something like that, <laughs> but the boundaries about what, is okay and what is not is very confusing in church culture because it does seem like there's all these Christian guys who are more than down to make out or like even do more. But if it's not sex, it's cool. And it's like everyone yeah. knows this is going on. So it's really kind of confusing that either if it is talked about, it's in this like really overbearing, rigid, don't even look at the other sex till you're married kind of way. Or it's like, eh, you'll figure it out, which neither way is really great guidance. No. Yeah. The other thing that my youth pastor had said, um, he one time gave a talk, you know, like the the purity talk. Um, and it, his example for that was that it's like a ladder. And wherever you stop on the ladder physically with someone is probably where you'll pick up the next time. Which is what? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so inaccurate. Like, I feel like, you know, in some ways, like, I wouldn't say for in my personal life, it's not completely wrong. I was like, oh, that's fun. I do want to do that. But you know what it didn't teach was consent. Right. It didn't teach that actually, like, that kind of thing could happen to you. And then you could say, oh, I don't feel comfortable doing that thing. I can step back. Like, it gave no no direction at all. And instead it just continued to perpetuate this shameful conversation around anything physical, anything if, romantic. If you're a uh, pastor or a youth pastor out there listening, I'm going to, I just thought of, well, I just articulated this in my head just now, but I, <laughs> I want to, the best lesson I could ever teach anyone who's a pastor or youth pastor, not everything has to be a simile it just doesn't you don't have to make up stuff like that. <laughs> it's just no, largely it unhelpful exhausting. it's stupid yeah. it's it's just like it just shows that like well one i know a lot of youth pastors are sometimes like single guys who 
uh, maybe haven't had a lot of experience and stuff. So that might mm. contribute to some of it. Yeah, I I I would say in, in a lot of ways I was similar. I, I definitely had more girlfriends, but I only had one girlfriend towards the end of high school that was like public knowledge that like my parents knew about and stuff. Um, definitely did not feel like, so, so my parents were, I guess, more progressive than some, like, I remember my dad saying, well, you can go on group dates. Like that was kind of his ideology was, he was like, you can like get to know a girl, be a thing with her, but it should be like in the context of hanging out with friends, not just like being extra romantic. And he actually had solid reasons. It wasn't just this weird fear of us being alone in like some space and then committing the worst tragedy ever and having sex. Um, it was more about um, in his mind, it was like, I don't want to put all this pressure on you that you have to like marry the first girl you date. So it was actually very countercultural to what uh, my church in high school uh, taught, which was like the whole courtship uh, culture. That was really, really uncomfortable. Yikes. That's cool about your dad. My parents were like, so not involved in anything like, my mom gave me like the sex talk when I was probably like nine, um, maybe even younger than that, actually. And then that was it. Like she just was like, here's an anatomy book. And then after that, we never discussed boys. And I was like sneaking out at night, getting picked up in cars, <laughs> you know. And, Which, uh, again, it's like some of that's fine. You know, it's some of it's just mm -hmm. high school living, but some of it actually is kind of dangerous. And uh, the church culture that claims to try to be protective um, really does counterintuitive things to be protective of kids. Um, while yeah. we're kind of float circling this topic of church, I, I know you've done some research into this. So can you just give uh, the audience like a summary of the evangelical ideal for marriage? Yeah, there's, um, quite a few things that like kind of come to mind just from Bible college days, you know, uh, marriage is a God sanctioned lifelong covenant, um, between one man and one woman. Don't get that wrong. Uh, <laughs> preferably you're virgins when you get married. I mean, it can be okay if you're not, I guess, but definitely ideal and Christians should only marry Christians. Really quickly, I know this is kind of dumb to asterisk, especially since you were already on the patriarchy episode, but I think it might be worth noting, like, the pressure to be a virgin at marriage is way heavier on the woman than the man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be white as snow. Gotta match your wedding dress. <laughs> right, <laughs> which... Okay, sorry, I'm getting on all sorts of tangents, but like that's part of why, like, kind of sarcastically, because I was already really fed up with uh, Christian culture by the time I was married. But I wore a white tux, and part of my joke was always, uh, "Well, like, who's to say I'm not pure too?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, Ooh, and nice. uh, yeah, boy, boy, did I have some angst I needed to get out in a <laughs> healthy outlet. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so, so far, you've talked about yeah, like it's like. It's God-sanctioned. It's like a covenant, which is very biblical language. It's a covenant that you're making um, and that there's preferably an uh, an amount of like weird honor and purity thing going on. Yeah. And then I think that I would have said in Bible college that the goal of marriage is to love each other as Christ loves, us, loves the church, which we kind of already joked about. Um, it's always kind of like it's this big, beautiful metaphor that we get to take pardon 
And really, like, yeah, non-Christians, like, they can get married, but, you know, it's only really Christians that get to experience the real benefits of marriage, the real outworking. Um, but I, th- I do think it's interesting that we kind of frame it like that, because in Ephesians, you know, it really lands that that is actually what the man's role is in the relationship, in the woman is kind of not included in that. She's just like told you're supposed to respect, obey and help your husband. Um, All that lovey-dovey stuff weirdly is put on the dude. Um, Yeah. And then I think the only last few things I would add to that is like, um, there's some interesting stuff about, you know, Paul says that, you know, you really don't need to get married, but you should get married if like sexual temptation is too high for you. So, you know, we don't really talk about it like that, but I think the way that Christian marriages go down um, and weddings, it's, is very on display, like sex first, <laughs> like you're going to get to have sex if you're married. Um, yeah. It's, it's very creepy if you uh, are outside the context, I'm very sure, but I can tell you from being in Bible college with the whole like ring by spring joke and all this stuff, it's it's plays out uh more than maybe Christians are even willing to admit um that a big driving force in getting married is just to have sex. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. But we call it, you know, increasing mankind, like oh, we're we're uh flourishing in the earth. We're making more little baby Christians. We're we're doing what we're supposed to, but <laughs> which again <laughs> a lot ties about in sex. this idea that yeah, marriage, yeah, it's kind of got that one purpose of displaying Christ's love. Like, it's it's a it's a way of evangelism. Um, imagine that. That's what evangelicals <laughs> think. Marriage is a way of evangelism. And then also, yeah, procreation, which says a lot about their views of sex, too. But that's, like, kind of built in is this whole Puritan idea of, like, a family unit and such. Yeah. Yeah. And then lastly, I think the it's important to say the only things that for a long time could end a marriage would be adultery, which is usually on the woman, um, abandonment or death. Yeah, actually in the, in the denomination I grew up in, that is, uh, I believe still the language they use is, uh, in cases of adultery and abandonment. And now they've reinterpreted abandonment to me to include like physical abuse is a way of abandoning your spouse. Um, but it seems like it'd be easier to just add a third thing to me. Um, <laughs> just yeah, be very clear yeah. about it. Um, Abuse is not cool. Yeah, which like, again, like you don't have to twist a Christian's arm too far to get him to say that. Um, but it's like, well, then why isn't it part of policy? Like, um, And also, why is there a policy about marriage is probably a bigger question. I wanted, I wanted to ask you, as we kind of talked about like high school, like how this also played out for you in college. Like, I feel like, I don't know, for me, that was very different between youth group and college. And so. Oh, I have so many anecdotes I'd love to share if you'll, if you'll uh, entertain it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'll toss mine in, my hat in the ring. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give the brief version of mine. Um, because it is pretty simple. I did not date a lot in Bible college, actually. I, um, because freshman year, so, <laughs> oh God, I hope she doesn't care. She doesn't listen to this podcast. It's fine. Um, the first gal <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I went on a date with, I had actually asked her out 
before I even got there because my class we're all talking on like Google Hangouts and online before we actually moved to Washington because no one in my class or very few were actually from Washington. They were all from all over. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we were talking before and I saw a cute girl and I was like, I'm going to ask her out because in my head I was like, oh, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to be my own person. I can just ask out some babes, go on some dates. It's going to be chill. Like that's where my head was because I was pretty sure I wanted to move away. I just had a bad breakup. So I was like, I want to move away from this serious, you date someone, then you marry them kind of stuff. Um, But (laughs) her way of interpreting me asking her out was, uh, you should meet my parents. We should talk about this. And um, definitely pushed for that MRS degree. Um, And uh, I freaked out about it. Definitely still like, um, you know, was physical with her and all that stuff. Not physically. God, I that dumb Christian language. We did sexual things together um, and um, like enjoyed each other in that way. But uh, but it got to a point where I realized it meant something different for her than it did for me. So um, it was funny, though, because my RA, Jaybird, who, you know, um, he like kind of sat me down and said, hey, I know because he came from a Christian background, but also he like went to public school. Like he understood more of what made uh, our college weird. (laughs) And so he was like, hey, man, I know how you're perceiving this. And I just want to tell you that's not most moody girls. Um, And I and he tried to warn me. I didn't heed the warning uh, until it was too late. And that blew up in a whole Mm -hmm. thing. Um, But then by my second semester, I had met the gal who became my eventual wife. And me and her, I don't know if you even know this, we actually started out as not being particularly serious. Um, Hmm. We were going to keep it pretty casual. We were somewhat, I mean, I would say we were exclusive. We were only going out on dates with each other. But very maturely, actually, for our age, especially, we were like, hey, if you want to go on a date with someone or if you want to, like, kind of shift gears away like let's try to find a way to stay friends um and not be too like you know too close too fast um because we didn't want to fall into that ring by spring trap you know um and then me and her witnessed a shooting and almost died and i accelerated the relationship like crazy (laughs) so i was like oh my gosh i almost saw this girl die i'm in love with her yada 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 uh, so I didn't actually date that much in college, but I it was not the last time I ran into this thing where if I talked to a girl for too long or the wrong way, then like it became a thing um, where like boys and girls just couldn't be friends unless they were going to get married, I guess, uh, was a pretty common theme that I ran into uh-huh. a few times. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And uh, yeah, I don't know. So like I said, you know, in high school, I like kissed so many people, did so much. Um, and then when I got to Moody, I I only kissed two people besides Chris, my now husband, um, while I was there. And even so, I like got this like reputation for being slutty. Um, but also just interesting, like, again, too, with youth group, despite all of that, I wasn't really ever like chastised or like reprimanded except for that one experience. Um, I don't know if it was just like people didn't know or people didn't like care. I I don't know. But in college, there's so much feedback. Um, You know, 
again, like I only, I kissed two people. So the feedback was all about like, even just like talking to a guy, even just like expressing to my girlfriend that I, I liked someone, um, was, was like a big deal and everyone has their two cents. And so I think that the hardest thing that happened to me was that then when Chris and I started dating, um, someone immediately went to one of Chris's close friends and was like, do you know, like Sierra has like kissed people or whatever. Um, she's probably just like seducing you. They literally use the word seducing. Um, Yikes. and you know, like we work this out with these people. So it, it's kind of fine, whatever. Now they apologized, but it, that was really rough. I was like, what, what is happening? Like, you know, this isn't, it's not like I'm like talking to Chris and doing stuff with other people and it's like a secret or, you know, whatever, like that, none of that was happening. Um, and so when, now that I'm in this like exclusive relationship with Chris, why does it matter that I kissed whoever a year ago, you know, like what, why does that have like some mark on my personhood, on my ability to be in a relationship? Like I just, I couldn't really believe it. Um, it's very easy to damage your reputation, um, in, uh, Christian culture, um, in ways where you didn't even do anything wrong. Yeah. You just like, look at someone wrong. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but something I was thinking about, like, you know, kind of prepping for this was I was examining like the cognitive dissonance that we kind of had. And I don't know if like these these statements I'm going to share, John, if they like resonate with you um, or if a lot of these are things that like girls, you know, would say to each other in Bible college. But um, some of them, it was like this idea that marriage is really serious. So we take dating really, really serious, which that seems like, OK, that makes sense, I guess. Um, but then that kind of goes into like this idea of your dates need to be really serious and intentional, but then also like, Oh my God, are you getting too close or too serious with this person too quickly? Like there's all this judgment around if you dove headlong, like that would bring about a lot of judgment. Um, So you'd be told something like you need to guard your heart. Um, It's really important that you marry the right person. So you need to be really selective about who you date But that also seems like it doesn't go together because if you're selective about who you date, how the heck are you going to know who you should marry? Like you don't know anything like about yourself in relationships or about what different kinds of people are out there, what works well for you. Like, Well, I was just going to interject and say, especially when um, you're not allowed to get to know the opposite uh, gender unless you like are dating them so like even if they wanted to live in some sort of world where oh like be selective like get to know people first it's like well you don't let me unless i'm dating them yeah yeah and it's like such a damage though every time you date someone because it's like you're supposed to save as many parts of yourself as possible for your future spouse you know like this is the most important relationship of your life 
So hopefully you have a lot of uniqueness of exclusivity to bring to the table for that relationship. But also just in case you were, uh, you know, getting too far down that path, don't make marriage an idol. <laughs> Which, you know, what does that even mean? Cause like, I'm like, I remember, I remember struggling with that concept more in high school where I was like, Oh, am I crushing too hard on a girl? Do I like her too much because uh-huh. she's becoming an idol? It's like, what an odd way to approach a relationship with another human being. Like, Hey, I can't love you too much. Like, what is is god competitive for your human relationships that sounds pretty silly yeah no i feel like that is one of the biggest things that messed with me in in christian circles was this thing even in friendships it would be like um you're relying on me way too much you need to really like um take some time to yourself and like really like take that to god like i can't i can't carry that for you um And then in the same way, like when Chris and I got married, like my best friend at the time was like, yeah, so like Chris is your best friend now, not me. Like you're married. So, um, you know, you really need to like be spending more time with Chris and like sharing those things with him, not me. Which, by the way, any therapist would say, uh, no, the opposite. Like, they would say, like, when you get married, please have friends you can go to besides your spouse. Because otherwise, it becomes, like, an unhealthy codependency thing. Yeah, but I feel like that is exactly what happens in Christian marriages. Especially when you're really deep in evangelicalism. Is this, like, what's put on a pedestal is to be codependent with your partner. That literally it's about like being one flesh, being like the same person that you like own each other's bodies is literally language that gets used. And, you know, that's not really like you if you I've never had anyone try to tell me what that actually means in practice. It's just like some metaphor that gets like used. But, you know, it, re- it to me just sounds like, OK, so this relationship is solely defined by its exclusivity that all that makes my marriage, my marriage is that I share and am completely involved with Chris and only Chris in this way ever me and him. That's, that's what this is. I'm, I'm tied completely to him. Yeah. Which I mean, really is the epitome of like a patriarchal monogamous system. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even when they are vaguer in the like metaphors, it almost seems like it's because if they filled in the blanks, they would realize it's actually really messed up and toxic. Um, So kind of trying to compare this, like some of what we've talked about, about church, like with what the Bible actually says, you know, polygamy was actually really normal in ancient Judaism. Um, And the Bible frequently references polygamy and in some places even has rules about how you should be polygamist. Um, so is the Old Testament anti-polygamy in any way? Am I missing something? <laughs> um, my hot take is that it's not, that it really is full throttle polygamist. Um, it's interesting, like, so how I got into that topic was, you know, my, long story short, my dad was like, gonna get remarried again and it was really messed up in the church that I went to that was hella conservative that he was now a part of was like on board and I was at bible college like what the heck is happening 
Like I, I was told by these people that this was not okay. And now here they're like signing on to this thing, which my dad did go on to marry this person and like ruin their life and, and divorce them. Um, which while I'm like removed from the church now, I was like, if, if there's any reason to have rules around remarriage, it would be for that kind of thing for the guy who is not repentant and then like continues to ruin women's lives. Like, and I would actually argue there are rules that get close to that in the New Testament, which is kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so when I was like really like looking into that, trying to study it and understand what the rules were in the Bible, what the Bible had to say about marriage and remarriage and divorce, I stumbled upon also all the stuff about polygamy. And I was in Old Testament theology at the time and had to do a giant paper and presentation. Didn't really know what I was going to do. And so I thought, well, I'll just do this. Um, Actually, surprisingly, one of my professors who taught like cultural anthropology and intercultural studies, the major I was in, um, he often would give like a lesson that blew people's minds and made them really angry, which was that it's not wrong to be polygamous. Um, but all of my theology professors were like, that's, that's bull. Um, and they told me, yeah, you should write a paper on this. And you know, what you're going to find is that while maybe it's not explicit, um, this book called the art of the narrative, uh, it, it says that, you know, implicitly, if you look at the lives of all of the major patriarchs that were polygamous, you will see that it didn't work out well for them, that God like punished them. Or that they, you know, there's there are negative consequences for being polygamous. And so you really shouldn't do it. So I was like, okay, well, uh, then that sounds like easy research, right? I'll just go person by person through the Old Testament and see what I come up with. And at the end of it, write my thesis of this is what the Old Testament has to say. And so I did just that. Um, and, you know, that is not is not the case at all. I got to the end and was like, dang. Um, the yeah, you were lied Old to. Testament, yeah, it, there was even a time, oh, I, roast, I roasted Tim Keller <laughs> in, my, in my presentation because he, he in some, like, I don't know if it was like his book or something, he quotes the art of the narrative and says that it, says this quote about polygamy that actually is not in the book. Um, and everyone I talked to referenced that. And I was like, this is not, this is not accurate. Um, and so I think my favorite one, if I was going to share one that really rebuffs this argument that there's like negative consequences is Moses, because basically like one line, Moses remarried someone or married like an additional wife and she was a foreigner. And, uh, you know, Aaron and Miriam, they, they get pissed. They're like, what are you doing? Maybe he's not supposed to be the leader. And God shows up. He's like, how dare you question my leader? And then gives Miriam leprosy. <laughs> like that is the opposite of punishing anyone. God stood by him in that decision. Um, yeah. Right. And all of this is God did God that in, I mean, of course we can't in this episode completely deconstruct how you're, how you should in, interpret Old Testament uh, narratives, but 
mm-hmm. more or less like if the thesis of most white evangelicals is yeah polygamy happened um in fact even some of god's favorite people which is again problematic language uh mm-hmm. were polygamist but it's not the most ideal like that's how they shift the argument and it's like okay maybe that's a fair point prove it and the bottom line is you actually can't prove it with just the old testament at all and probably not even if you start to include the new testament yeah i think the only other thing you can rely on in the old testament is the age old well adam and eve thing like taking the story and making it a metaphor for the way life is supposed to be, which immediately I'm like, okay, if that's what you're going to say, then why aren't we all naked? Like, if you're really trying to emanate what Adam and Eve are doing, then take off your clothes. Like, I don't, you can't, you can't just pick and choose. Say that again, but slower. No, just kidding. I'll edit that out. (laughs) Um, But... Can I I just wanted to say that my favorite part of the end of that story was that so one, I took that paper. John, you used to work in the writing center, right? I did. Yeah. So I went there. I hated going there. I don't Maybe because uh, everyone always wanted to tell me what to do. And I'm like, I know how to write my papers. Excuse me. Um but... they were not all created equal in there, that's for sure. No, no. And the girl that I took this paper to, you know, she you like read the whole paper first and take some notes and then and then chat about it and she read my paper and she got to the end and she got to my thesis and she literally tried to argue with me about the thesis of my paper and tell me I had to change it she told me she disagreed with me even though she had no proof that's that's not that's not what our job was by the way no no (laughs) I knew so frustrating because you know how many papers i read that i disagreed with their points yeah like that's not the point tell me if i like use too much passive tense or whatever right yeah you can't you can't i mean you we were supposed to tutor more than we were supposed to just you know like um proofread but at the same time Mm -hmm. it's like you're not you're talking about how to make points stronger not to change the points being made yeah she was really shook so then I went and I had to pre- like do a whole presentation and my class blew up like everyone had questions. You know, this is a class, honestly, a lot of people slept in. I slept in it. Like, <laughs> I, it was it was it was really boring. And all of a sudden, the whole class is like asked mostly men asking me really intense questions about what I found, which I granted i was glad that it was just Old Testament because they would want me to talk about the New Testament to, you know, back up whatever, to feel better about them wanting to hold on to monogamy. And I was like, we're not talking about the New Testament in here. We're just talking about the Old Testament. And they couldn't get around it. And when I left that class, I literally had people in the halls talking about me, about me and polygamy. And I had professors come up, not even the professor of my class, And they knew about my paper and they wanted to talk about it with me and like make sure that I didn't want to become polygamous. What a what a world. Um, And what maybe that maybe we can point out some more fun sexism. You know, I think you and I have talked about this before um, that like, you know, my first paper in college writing was actually about legalizing polygamy. Um, oh, I think I forgot. I, yeah, I mean, it was not, it was like a two-page, double-spaced mm. nothing, you know. <laughs> um, 
but it was just supposed to be persuasive. So it didn't even, I think they were like, you know, you only need like one citation or something. Like it, it was baby, baby writing, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, pick a, pick an issue. And this was something I actually believed, but I would never tell anyone at Moody. I actually believed this. <laughs> um, I believed it should be legal. I didn't agree with it at the time. Um, I didn't think like I wouldn't encourage people to be polygamist. I still thought it was a sin or whatever at the time. Um, but I didn't get it because I thought gay marriage should be legal because I was like, why are we regulating people's lives? Mm-hmm. And I was like, and also, why are we regulating how many people should they should have? So I just wrote a paper put very little work into it just did a pretty basic argument right like a basic argument was like the bible doesn't actually teach against this so we can't use that um if we're worried about abuse that's abuse and we should be worried about abuse across the board um Mm -hmm. and that was my basic argument and so i and i presented it in a very dramatic fashion i remember the first word of that paper was injustice with an exclamation point so i read it in front of class (laughs) and pouted on the desk (laughs) And then it was very me. Um, yeah, got a got a hundred ten on that paper from Dr. Mills, bless her heart. Um, and uh, yeah, I got a little bit of feedback, but the thing was either because I'm a dude, so it was okay for me to have thoughts like that, um, which could just point to the general sexism at Bible College, or maybe it was just oh he doesn't mean it. And so, like, since I yeah. was less academic about it, they were like, ah, he was just trolling the class. And I was like, well, I was, but I also kind of wasn't. Yeah, I think it was a mix. And I think people were so thrown off the amount of research I had done. Like, I got really deep into it. I mean, heck, even like talking about this, doing this episode with you, I was like, oh, I can study this again. I got way, I was like staying up till midnight reading. I don't know why. I just really, I am interested. And so I like spent weeks with, I went through like every commentary that I had access to and tried to find information. And when people had questions, I had answers. And I think none of them were prepared for one, that conversation. And two, that it was a woman up there owning them in their own theology. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And it's weird though, because it's not like this just is a cultural thing in Bible college. It was certainly an extreme version of it, but I mean, it, this definitely applies broader to just the United States. And from my very rudimentary research, it seems like a big part of it was that the Puritans early on created like a basic economic unit of the nuclear family. And like part of that entity, which they called a family government was this idea of like a patriarchal system, a patriarchal monogamous system. And I think that had a large influence on polygamy being illegal in the United States actually fairly early on. But do you think the laws that enforce or encourage monogamy are due just because of Christian influence or are there other factors as well? So actually in my research, I'm definitely not an expert. I'm sure there's so much to uncover. And I honestly, I would like totally read a book about the history of monogamy if there's not already one, maybe I'll write it. But um (laughs) This thing I found, like, is the idea that actually Pauline Christianity may very well have only been monogamous because it evolved in a Greco-Roman context. And Augustine, who, I mean, this church father that we talked about so much in Bible college, he would call monogamy a Roman custom. Like, literally, the Romans, they did not practice polygamy, and they made special rules to allow the Jews in, like, King Herod to continue practicing monogamy over their rule. And so as 
Christianity spread amongst the Romans and the Roman Empire grew. It became this thing. I'm pretty sure it like became enmeshed. And you started to not be able to tell one from the other. Um, one other thing, too, along with like your idea of, of laws, like there actually were specific um, political reforms that happened in the Roman Empire that changed like someone's status from changing from it wasn't any longer based on like how big families were, how many offspring you had, those types of things, because there was a depression that was happening. And instead, they they switched it to being about your wealth. And that's how you gained political power. And so that also really shifted. Um, and I mean, we know Greek men definitely enjoyed one another. Um, and they they decided they were just friends, Sierra. You cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't. And no, it's so very they, obvious. There became really, it was taboo for them. They were like, why would we want multiple women? Women suck. Like, you know, so many, so many different reasons. Um, and so I find it fascinating that, you know, actually, this has so much more to do with Western culture than actually Christianity. The Jews were not monogamous right yeah maybe where i could yeah that's that's an interesting splice because i mean this is my own bias i full disclosure it's a bias um (laughs) that like i don't separate western culture and christianity very much so i'm always interested when someone can do that because in Mm. my head ever since like constantine and christendom like imperialism colonization like all of these ideas to me um i can't actually splice them from christianity in my head um not to say if someone's of that faith they're in support of all those things um Uh but i feel like they almost have to do some sort of cognitive cognitive dissonance to get there because at least historically they seem so intertwined to me yeah i think like so again i'm not an expert but since the thing i read was about herod like you're saying that Herod had many wives. He was polygamous and that was around the time of Jesus. And so during that time, like they were, he was around all the, the Romans and they, they were monogamous, but the Jews that Jesus was were, like with, maybe some of them were polygamous like that back then, but that it wasn't addressed in the new Testament, in the gospels that I can recall. Um, it wasn't discussed And so, you know, and I guess there are probably some quotes of Jesus talking about a man and a woman. Well, what's funny, Jesus is actually fairly silent on the topic of marriage. He he has a little bit to say about divorce, and it's actually some it's actually pretty uh, anti men if you want to read it that way. Um, Yeah. So, okay. So, I guess that that's a good way of looking at it. Is like, hey, um, Pauline Christianity is probably where a lot of monogamy started, and so Puritans. Weren't, weren't necessarily like inventors of it but maybe they just clarified that issue of well this is how we want to structure this new world um, yeah yeah and then they went and they became missionaries and they went to africa and they screwed everyone over sounds right <laughs> so, sounds legit <laughs> that, that's what um that professor the one i said that did talk about polygamy at moody and had the hot take that polygamy was okay he was the one that he tried to explain to moody students like you know for a really long time missionaries would go into other cultures that practice polygamy and you know obviously yes there could be abuse 
like women have not been treated well or had rights for like forever. Um, but in a lot of ways it was economically advantageous and they would come in and they would split people up and say, you can't, you can't have multiple wives. You can't do this anymore. And it would mess up their whole economy. It would mess up so many lives. And that is a weight that is on the early Christian missionaries. Um, and the reason why also a lot of cultures today continue to be monogamous because not only did they lose their own religion and culture through Christianity, but they, they also lost their, their relationship practices. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, it, it sounds very um, academic, but when you stop and actually feel the weight of the damage done by that, that's pretty dang tragic. Oh, yeah. Look, you could buy my book, you wanna buy my book, go buy my book, go to VernerBooks.com, yeah, yeah, go to VernerBooks.com, yeah, yeah, go buy my book and buy my book. If you go to VernerBooks.com, you can buy my book, you can buy my book, yeah. The Cult of Christianity, exclusively available on Amazon. You can search the Cult of Christianity, how churches control, contain, and convert by John Verner, or you can go to VernerBooks.com. You can go to VernerBooks.com. Go to VernerBooks.com. Buy my book! Buy my book. Buy my book. When you study all this history and like do this research that you're so excited about, obviously <laughs> your own personal perspectives probably changed in a lot of ways. So like if you could categorize um, if you can, you know, categorize the differences between how you viewed marriage as like a teenager, young adult, kind of when you first start being cognitive of like this idea of what you want for yourself or what you view as right and wrong um, versus like now having done all this research, having left Christianity, like what are some of the biggest differences? Yeah. So, I mean, I for a while now have even just been questioning like, what did I mean when I married Chris? What was I signing up for? Which we had a very egalitarian wedding. It still had some Christian themes, but we, we were definitely like moving in a certain direction then. Um, And so, you know, I've been, I've been questioning that and working through that with him of like, what does it mean for us to be married? Especially now that we aren't in the church And I think where we've kind of landed is that it's just about, about supporting one another. And that doesn't have to mean exclusivity. It doesn't have to mean that we're codependent, although we have been very codependent and we have to work really hard to not be. Um, And that has had a big chokehold on our marriage. Um, But One thing that has come up that has really like tested this and I think shown me that something that is different than what I was taught about marriage um, can can actually be for the better if I if I change my views um, is that I not like two years ago, I realized that I was bisexual and, you know, for a long time I was like, oh, okay, I'm not afraid to like say it. But that's that's what's going on. Yeah, that's that part of myself. And I just kind of sat with that for like, you know, several months. And then I remember in therapy being like, well, you know, like, I, there's nothing I'm really going to do about that. Like, it doesn't really matter that I'm bisexual. Like, I'm going to 
I literally used the word monogamous. I was like, I'm in a monogamous relationship. And so I'm, I'm married. I'm mar- like, I mean, cool. You know, I think it was because I kind of wanted to just like toss it behind me. Like kind of like I've picked up from you, John, like labels. Like I was like, I don't want to be labeled. Like I don't, I don't need to do that. Um, but as time went on, I started to be like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I want to know more about that part of myself. Can I know more? And my therapist very gently was like, so, you know, some people do this thing and it's called um, an open relationship. And like, you know, don't be offended. Don't be offended. But like, you could like do that. And I was like, oh, I could. And she's like, yep, that's not, it's not morally wrong. And I was like, you're right. I just, my idea of marriage was just, this is this very exclusive commitment for life. And I had yet to like, think what else would be possible. Like, I just, I was so, I don't know the words limited, but you know, I couldn't envision anything different for myself, even though I was no longer tied to the church. Um, and so I brought it up to Chris and just was like, this is what my therapist said. What do you think? And he immediately was like, heck yeah, heck yeah. I want you to know this part of yourself. You want to do that? You should do that. You should get on Tinder. <laughs> and I was just so shocked. Like, I love Chris. Sorry. I just too. like, I'm over here just like giddy about how much I love that man. I know. Like, I just can't believe still. Like, he has been my biggest cheerleader. Um, so I, I did do that, low-key. And um, I, I got on Tinder. I went on a couple dates. I have... Um, kissed a girl you know like I I hung out with someone and uh yeah Chris like he's my best friend like I literally come home and like tell him all about it and he's like so excited here um and I never I I think younger me I, I actually was just again therapy talking to my counselor about this this past week like I was trying to think what would younger Sierra think I think she would like throw up I think she would be so freaked out and overwhelmed and like, what the hell are you doing? Like, that's not, this isn't right. But now I can like so calmly be like, this has been like the most natural thing. This has been the best thing for my relationship. Actually, like seeing Chris love me in that way, him being by my side, even if it doesn't mean that I get absolutely everything from him, like, Instead of like it being for better or for worse, it's just like for different, you know, like I, I couldn't ask for more. Um, And for us, it's not like, you know, I don't have some label. I don't have some timeline or some plan about what this looks like. Um, It's not like that. It's just for right now, like Chris recognized that he, there's something in my life that he can't offer me. And instead of limiting me then, He's going to love me, encourage me to pursue that thing, even outside of our marriage. Where can I get a partner like you got? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, I'm falling in love with Chris hearing you talk about it. Um, But uh, wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. Honestly, Um, that I one of the just real quick point. I find that very interesting that like, you know, you're having this experience in therapy where your therapist is kind of saying, hey, this is available, but you've already done all your research. You know about polygamy more than anyone. You know that it was <sighs> that it's okay within the Christian system. And 
definitely should be okay outside of it, like by the mm-hmm. by the technicalities. Yet this white evangelical, you know, to use, I, I'm happy you. I've noticed you start using this word too. This cult, <laughs> um, yeah. Like, it's like, wow, it still had some sort of power over me, even though I technically knew better and had to have a therapist say, you know, that's okay, right, for it to finally click. Yeah. Yeah, it's so weird how I uh, I could think my way through all of these things. But still, it's like, that's that's what really has made me realize, like, I do think it's a cult, like, because I feel so trapped, so un- unimaginative, you know, like, I can't... I even outside of it, I still have trouble thinking to myself, like, what freedom I have. I feel like there's so many things that I have such a guttural response to that if I don't believe in hell, if I don't believe in this, I don't even have friends who are really Christians right now. Like, why do I, why do I have this intense response? And I just, it's the way we were trained for so long. Yes, it is. Um, and I get emotional about it because obviously I put in a lot of work <laughs> um, mm-hmm. to to try to talk through these issues. Um, you know, kind of the new term, I guess, is a newer term is religious trauma. I've tried and, um, you know, it, it's definitely something you can work through and therapize through. But sometimes that therapeutic language can get maybe like too intimidating because you might feel like, mm-hmm. well, trauma might be too strong. Um but I think it's definitely worth labeling the things that have control over you and um, force you into uh, ideologies that you don't truly believe. Your most vulnerable self does not truly believe. Um, mm-hmm. And no no one does it quite the way white evangelicalism does. Um, earlier, you mentioned labels. And, um, you know, <laughs> you're right. Labels kind of freak me out a little bit because... You know, sometimes in kind of absurdist ways, like identity and labeling has just like exploded in like internet culture. And like if you have like, let's say a sexual kink or like a, you know, different from the norm orientation or like a very specific kind of way that you like to receive love, like the odds are there's articles, books and podcasts all about that one specific thing. And in a lot of in a positive way, this is good because like younger people, uh, specifically maybe those who are caught in a system of monolithic thinking, like they'll have more language and more resources for understanding themselves. But again, that anti-label punk rock self I have, like it gets really overwhelming because I'm like, oh, so I'm just like in the middle of 20,000 Venn diagrams. Like I'm not, it it makes me feel like maybe my uniqueness is reduced or something. Um, but maybe a question that might clarify this idea of labels, like, is the idea of labeling all these things or these ideas that are being labeled, are they actually like new and trendy or does it just kind of seem they are sometimes? Yeah, I'm going to say something that maybe there will be someone who listens and is upset. <laughs> it's kind of spicy, but whatever. Um, you know, like, I think it was like several years ago, I remember seeing articles about there being like 30 something genders. And, you know, that was back when I was like still pretty probably homophobic. And, you know, so there's that part. But I also was like, this is very overwhelming. Like, how could I learn all of this? How could anyone like, you know, this is a really big jump. And that's a lot of, I I can get some of them, but this third over 30, like that, it just felt like a huge ask. 
And like we can't like I get that everyone has their own nuanced take, but that's just it. Like if it's gonna be super nuanced for everyone, then let's just accept that it's nuanced for everyone and come up with some key umbrella terms and not have everyone have their own thing that we all have to memorize. But then I also was like reading and, and thinking recently about how at the same time, some labels are really necessary. Um, not only for like the thing you were talking about, John, of like being able to label something for yourself, like put a name to it, put a finger on it. Like that helps with a lot of healing or like, um, like alignment, I feel like inside of ourselves, but also the legality. So like one thing with marriage, like it's mostly a, a legality. And I think about the rights that queer people have really had to fight for in their relationships, um, you know, with legalizing gay marriage, right? Um, so that they can like go see their spouse, their partner, significant other, like in the hospital um, to, you know, be able to share bills or like ha- both have their names on a house or, you know, whatever. And all those things happened because people decided we need to all rally behind this term, this label. And when we make it real, then people will have to listen. It's not just made up. It's not just like five people. It's not an illness. It's not whatever. Like we it's, this is, this is us and we deserve rights. And that's really only possible with a label. So I think I kind of see some similar things happening also around like the way we structure relationships. I think when we start to change as a society, we kind of like cast our nets really wide. We're all kind of questioning going out and then we're going to probably land somewhere in like, you know, a decade or two or three. Um, And so I can definitely see that probably in this, like saying things like open relationship or non-exclusive, non-monogamous, like just more like open terms, like that, that can be useful for something like, you know, me or Chris or for someone who's like, you know, just dating. But if, if this really is the way society goes, what will probably happen is that some people might actually find themselves even surprising to them, like in a polygamous situation. Um, it, you know, if, if we really are being so open, like that, it might just like naturally happen. And if that does, we're going to probably have to stick to some labels just so that people can continue to fight for rights. I mean, to be included in those same, those same legal ways. Um, but I definitely still feel you that like on a personal level, it can be, it can be a lot and it can be a challenge. And if you don't feel comfortable with a label, then don't worry about it. Like just focus on you and knowing what you want and how to, you want to communicate and present that to other people. I think that's a really good spot to like put the conversation, you know what I mean? Where it's like Mm -hmm. the conversation sometimes gets into like the morality zone or it gets into the the good of society zone i think the best way to put it is in the rights zone <laughs> like what do people have the right to do here what do they not and what are ways we can make sure everyone's playing a fair game you know and that we're not mm-hmm. uh favoring one group so heavily which we clearly are now which we talked a lot about in the patriarchy episode um yeah and what's funny actually is like as a society we're not really 
monogamous in practice right because like we don't we're not having like arranged marriages or i mean maybe or maybe i should say mono um amorous or something i don't know but um we're 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 there's very few people are actually with one person like their entire life Mm -hmm. and even though like the laws and systemic pressure still like favors that patriarchal um monogamy i wouldn't say that's like the average person's experience because like okay there's levels to intimacy right like there's sexual intercourse they're sleeping in the same bed there's making out you know there's um quality time there's like all these different things that i guess you could broadly call intimate and i know few people whether they're uh more prude or promiscuous who have like not had like several intimate partners on some level and i only know of one relationship that actually is a polygamous relationship where there's like um like multiple committed lifelong partners who are like exclusive to that group like i only know of one case of that um personally which is very anecdotal um but but my question is do we just like pretend to be a monogamous society and like (laughs) because it seems like if you actually took an honest look around we're not very monogamous creatures it almost seems no no we're not um and I, Esther Perel, I'll mention her later. Um, if you haven't like listened to like her TED Talks or whatever, I, I highly recommend her. She's done a lot of research on um, actually on adultery and divorce and stuff in, um, in relationships. And so one quote that she has that's really powerful is that monogamy used to mean one person like for life forever like literally just one person and now monogamy actually kind of means like well one person at a time um and and even that like i think we just we have these we all have an idea of what this means you know i think some other people really they specifically think about well then once i'm married i would never be with someone else or you know like it's it's very subjective um and i think people don't know how we got here, where monogamy comes from, the history of what relationships have looked like over time. Some people just, they hold it as this like ethical and religious standard um, that even like, as I said, right, is sometimes in deep contrast, even to the founders of their own faith. Um, But then some also, you know, not even about religion, like they just hold on to it because it's all that they know. Um, But the truth is, like, there's endless ways to describe how you can ethically structure the relationships in your life. And people do this every day, all the time. Um, And so just consider, like, how we talk about, like, being in a relationship with someone. Like, that phrase is completely subjective. I mean, I think people think it means, like, exclusivity. But then, like, what things are you willing to do with other people before you're officially exclusive? Like it's, it's really, it's really up to everyone. Chiming in really quick. Like, I think that that point specifically is such a, um, a point of, uh, like, you know, this, again, if you're like me and you're like therapy language adverse, like, sorry. Um, but it's about (laughs) communication, right? Because, um, it, it really does where most relationships, whether they're marriages or not fall apart is when they just assume they understand the other person's expectations. That's where a lot of problems lie. Um, 
and I think that's like so key that you're saying that is like what does being in a relationship mean is it a face is it a status on a social media platform or is it like up to you you know and I think that's like um such an important point that can't be emphasized enough yeah and so when you finally like step back and realize how non-monogamous we really are then you can feel free to honestly ask yourself like what do I want from a partner? Like, even if I don't have like a label for it, like, just like, what do I want? Um, You know, I think that's such a powerful question that we haven't really been able to ask ourselves until now. Yeah. And certainly not within the confines of the evangelical cult. Um, On this point, actually, the idea of opening up a Christian marriage, maybe there's a couple listening that like, it's like, well, we've kind of thought about this, but is that really a thing we can do? Um, well, it, yeah, it's taboo. <laughs> like, it's a taboo thing yeah. still. And But I do have enough insider knowledge from, like, working in different churches and stuff to tell you that it absolutely happens. There are open marriages in Christianity, but it's almost always a secret. And for some, fine. They may enjoy the privacy. Uh, but for others, that, like, duplicitous living, like, weighs on them. I mean, I even know, like, if you're, like, I don't know, like a Christian couple and you watched porn together once, like you <laughs> might have some deep shame about it or something like this. Yeah. So like maybe a way to phrase this question is just to you is like, is it anyone's business? Like particularly in communities like churches that can be so overbearing, whether or not a marriage is open or closed? Um, you know, it really depends like <laughs> who you're asking. <laughs> um, so you get if I play devil's advocate on this one to start. Absolutely. Okay, so if I were to channel my old evangelical self, um, I think what people would say is like, well, um, you know, we don't really often deal with the topic of consensual extramarital sex. But you know what? I think we would call this just sex outside of marriage. And, you know, that's that's pretty, that's sin. So we do have a right to know and to hold people accountable for their sin. Um, But at the same time, right, it goes back to like, okay, well, are you going to like hold like Moses accountable? Like this was happening. This happens in the Bible and it's fine. So is it really sin? And in that way, it's like, well, no, it's really not your business. And if it's causing harm to someone, if it's cheating, that's different. That's so different, but this isn't cheating. This is open communication and consensual completely. So I think one area where the evangelical church could become a lot less like a cult (laughs) is if they decided, okay, we need to think about the things that we try, that we make our business. If it's not a moral issue, moral as in, hurting somebody, then I don't think we need to be up in someone's business. Because if if in this situation, like, okay, so they're both consensual, no one's getting hurt in this arrangement, um, then maybe they'll say, oh, well, well, God will, God will punish them then. And like, we're supposed to hold them accountable and, you know, try to not have them, you know, God's wrath, or I don't know what they're going to say. But it seems from the old testament god doesn't punish them but if he's going to punish them then let them reap that i guess like that's not on you so just let people make those decisions that only affect them and i think we would have 
a lot more, uh, it would feel like people are a lot less trapped. Definitely. Um, you know, Protestants, evangelicals, um, and like a bunch of other um, denominations within Christianity actually have pretty high divorce rates. Um, do you think this is due to the pressure put on like monogamous marriage by um, different Christian groups? It's kind of hard for me to know that answer, I think, because I don't really know how marriage looks different for other religions. Like, for example, in Islam or a couple of that practices Buddhism. Um, but I mean, if it, if my relationship and the way that that all went down around my marriage is, is starkly different than yeah, like that pressure of, you know, this, that codependency that you're alone, but also held to this really high standard. Like if that's, if that's pretty exclusive to evangelicals, then totally. Yeah, I would think it is. I mean, just because, like, again, like, not even in the sense of, like, I'm saying, because I'm not the guy who's going to say, you know, is your marriage struggling? Have you tried seeing other people? I don't think that's just my perception (laughs) right now. I understand why some people are like that, and that's totally fine to make that suggestion. I don't think that will ever be the first suggestion I make. Um, But, that you know, I have my own reasons and uh, biases and whatever for that. Um, but what I do know for a fact is that if you can't have the conversation that is lethal to your relationship, because 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 honestly, like, I think I mean, I know that from my own marriage, right? Like m- a lot of the failings ultimately came back to what did I feel like we couldn't even talk about um, as well as as well as my ex-spouse, like what what they felt like I could not even what they could not even talk about, you know? Yeah, I think I mean, that. I think that resonates on so many topics. Like when you feel trapped, when you feel unimaginative, um, you know, sorry, I'm, <laughs> I was thinking about something and I don't know if I should just say like forewarning, but it's kind of like with mental health, you know, if your mental health gets so bad and you feel like you can't see anything different and you're, there's no way out, then maybe, you know, it ends up being that you are become suicidal because you can't see anything else. And in same th- ways with relationships, when it feels like there's no way out, I, I signed up to be with this person for life. Um, you know, I feel like you get cornered to a point where then all of a sudden someone just is like, screw it all and just files for divorce. There's not conversations along the way. There's not discussions about how we could be creative and solving this. The, when, you're, when you have that much stress on you, you're not creative. You can't. You're just trying to survive. And it really sucks that we put people in that in that position over and over again. And not only is there a lack of creativity, there's a lack of honesty and vulnerability. Because when, you know, there's, I mean, I've talked about this in many different topics when it comes to Christianity. But when there's this idea that, like, um, you, you, you can't shame yourself out of a habit, basically. <laughs> and yeah. Christians try to shame yourself out of sinning. And it doesn't work. Like, I don't even care if we agree and disagree on what sins, what is actually sin, what is actually bad. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about methods for um, avoiding it. Shame is not the answer. And when it comes to monogamy versus polygamy, like you were talking about the strong responses you had to your paper in Bible college. 
that's because there's been this shame on anything but their patriarchal monogamous structure. Um, and, and it's, and I assume it's just bullying tactics because it's, again, like you said, very tied to like economic growth. It's very tied to capitalist structures. It's very tied to, um, patriarchal standards. It's tied to a lot of things yeah. that are really important to the cult. Um, and the cult will kind of fall apart if we start poking too many holes in that. At least that's my theory. Um, and, you know, in this conversation, like, I have to admit that I'm I'm glad that we're, like, moving towards a society, even if it feels like it's at a snail's pace, that, like, wants more equity and opportunity for individuals. And, like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, even as a freshman in Bible college, I thought it was ridiculous that polygamy was illegal, which it still is in most states, um, although no one gives a crap if you open up your marriage. Um, but our entire, <laughs> but, but, but like you were saying about rights, you still don't have the same rights if you uh, wanted to be um technically polygamous Mm -hmm. and our entire uh country should not be subjected to like a very narrow stance on how many um partners is our i are is like the ideal but let's do devil's advocate for just one more time like is there any potential harm for legalizing or normalizing polygamy is there like a catastrophic um you know, disintegration of society that we're just not seeing because of our biases? I really can't think of any. And when most cultures have been like this in history, it's really hard for me to then come up with something. In fact, if anything, it's going to be the most ethical form of polygamy that's ever existed um, because of the rise of feminism. Um So I think if anything, if people have a really guttural reaction, it's going to be back to like what we're talking about with labels. Like, you know, it's like someone having to learn how to use the word partner instead of assuming that someone's married to someone of a certain gender or like learning to use pronouns. People make a big deal about change. They do. And they're going to I can see people linking this to, you know, um, pervertedness and other things and whatever, whatever. But when it comes down to it, I don't think any of the issues that we would see to my knowledge would be actually straight up related to the opening up of relationships or polygamy. It would, if anything, it's going to be issues that we already have that would just follow suit. Yeah. I think I am in full agreement with you on this in that, um yeah any issues that would come up are already happening and uh maybe the only way i could kind of flip it on its head in my opinion is i'm like i don't and i kind of i kind of hinted at this earlier i the only thing i might be worried about is if people think polygamy is a solution like like a silver bullet i should say you know what i mean where it's like oh there's problems there shouldn't be problems we're polygamous and i don't think that happens on like any kind of academic or like like no one would say that out loud, but I think maybe subconsciously sometimes um, I've seen it in 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 friends before, maybe um, uh, or or just like could see myself, you know, uh, being like, well, if there's polygamy, then it'll all be good, and like that's you know, there's plenty of articles and junk you can read on about the differences between ethical and non-ethical polygamy and all this stuff. Um, but that's like the only thing I could see is if we kind of got it in our heads that it would fix any solutions. I think a lot of the problems we have would still exist with it, 
But one problem we certainly wouldn't have is the pressure that comes from this like enforced monogamy. And then again, one last point. I, I just think that like, you know, you've you've heard me say this before, but my, my theory is that white evangelicalism like wants to maintain a system that is patriarchal and monogamous because it's an efficient way to control a whole family and keep, you know, individuals all on the same trajectory. If you have a family unit that's patriarchal, monogamous, very efficient based, it makes it easier to control them. And, uh, you know, Christian cults are about that manipulation, that persuasion and that maintaining of power. Is this the main reason that Christians do this or are they really just good people trying to obey God? <laughs> I think this is where I also differ from you um, on the last podcast, too. I'm just I think I hold often a very nuanced view of like what people are capable of accomplishing um, and the idea that people are doing some group project <laughs> to structure this um, and keep it running. So people have power. I, I just group projects seem people, people suck at, at collaborating. Um, and so something on that scale, I kind of have a hard time thinking that monogamy has only been perpetuated in this way for that purpose. I think instead it's, it probably has more to do with the way that it intertwined with people's, religion and when it feels like they're it it contradicts their holiness their ability to be better than other people the way of life as they know it maybe even their or their loved ones acceptance into heaven like I always I feel I always lean on the way that like if there is a lot of if there's something negative happening a lot of times it's because of fear um, and so that's where I kind of think that this is gone. Like I said, I'll, that's why I think people responded the way they did in that classroom. Some people because of, because of sexism, a bit because of patriarchy that is in there, but also out of fear of you're telling me something completely different, something that contradicts everything I've ever heard or known. Um, and you're telling me my faith is, is not what I thought. Like, like, that's so much for people to handle. And so we've continued down this route. And yeah, I think for people, people feel, they feel good when they think that they've obeyed God. And so I think that's how we've got to where we are today. And a lot of times people can't open their eyes enough to see sometimes the damage that has been caused from something like this when it's so intrinsically tied to their faith. Definitely. And I agree with you that fear is a huge motivator in all of our lives. I mean, it's one of the things that causes responses in us with almost automatically. Like, you know, uh, yeah. part of growing as a person is turning um, your fear reactions into fear responses, you know, and like, um, and that's hard for people who, yeah, have something ingrained so deeply. Um, I'm still going to keep postulating the the church spiracy that uh there's people out there who have very bad motives for uh doing all of this and yes i there's absolutely a self-sustaining subconscious historical tragic nature to it too i don't think yeah, yeah. i don't think there's like a meeting between like you know tim keller and you know someone else <laughs> and john piper like you know rubbing yeah, their hands yeah. together like ha 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 we got him i don't think that's happening yeah um yeah but i do think on a smaller scale uh people would be shocked what's talked about <laughs> behind closed doors um 
and uh, how much of it is about um, this power. Sierra, we're about up on time. Gosh, this would not have been near the quality um, <laughs> and near as helpful as it uh, has been without you. Thank you so much. Um, do you have anything you want to plug, promote, anything like that? <laughs> I forgot to think about this part. You know, this sounds so dumb, but I actually like, really care about my work. So why not? Um, bee sting allergies are like really serious. And so if you have one, I think you have one. Don't just like be chill with it. People actually die. Uh, and your bee sting reactions can get worse each time. It's not just going to be the same. So if you had a pretty bad reaction to a bee sting before, you should definitely see an allergist. And there's a treatment called venom immunotherapy that is 98% effective at stopping it. Um, I know it's crazy. I work for, I guess you could say a pharmaceutical. I feel weird plugging it. But at the same time, this product literally changes people's lives. Like, for real, for real. So don't let a bee sting kill you, I guess. Is there a good, like, website or resource for people to go to? Oh, yeah. I manage a website for it. It's called um, Be Aware Allergy. It's very pun intended. So B-E-E-AwareAllergy.com. Awesome. That seriously, you never know that that resource can seriously uh, save lives. So if you're listening yeah. and you're like, "Wow, what a weird happenstance," uh, you know, just for uh, cash at me if you buck. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no. Sierra, honestly, it's been great catching up with you. Thank you so much uh, for helping yeah. me through this. Um, and uh, it's 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 truly great, and I can't wait to have you back on. Oh, thanks, John. This has been good for me too. Awesome. And thank you, listener. Y'all have a good one. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to vernerbooks.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.